If you want to know where the phrase, by the skin of my teeth, comes from, it comes from Job chapters 18 and 19, uh, a phrase uh, coined, I think, by Tyndale when he translated the Bible into English. And uh, also in these chapters, one of the most uh, wonderful testimonies of faith, what makes it especially wonderful, I know that my Redeemer lives, is that it is reached and felt in pain and in perplexity, as you will see as we read this chapter. Chapter uh, 18 is uh, Bildad, Job's friend, who brings him ungodly wisdom in his suffering. And chapter 19 is Job's godly response as a believer. Chapter 18. Then Bildad, the Shuite, answered and said, How long, Job, will you hunt the words? Consider, and then we will speak. Why are we counted in your eyes, Job, as cattle? Why are we stupid in your sight? You who tear yourself in your anger, shall the earth be forsaken for you? Or the rock be removed out of its place. Indeed, the light of the wicked is put out, and the flame of his fire does not shine. The light is dark in his tent, and his lamp above him is put out. His strong steps are shortened, and his own schemes throw him down, for he is cast into a net by his own feet, and he walks on its mesh. The trap seizes him by the heel, a snare lays hold of him. A rope is hidden for him in the ground, a trap for him in the path. Terrors frighten him on every side and chase him at his heels. His strength is famished, and calamity is ready for his stumbling. It consumes the parts of his skin. The firstborn of death consume his limbs. He is torn from the tent in which he trusted, and is brought to the king of terrors. In his tent dwells that which is none of his, sulfur is scattered over his habitation. His roots dry up beneath and his branches wither above. His memory perishes from the earth and he has no name in the streets. He is thrust from light into darkness and driven out of the world. He has no prosperity or progeny among his people and no survivors where he used to live. They of the west are appalled at his day and horror seizes them of the east. Surely such are the dwellings of the unrighteous. Such is the place of him who knows not God. Then Job answered and said, How long will you torment me and break me in pieces with words? These ten times you have cast reproach upon me. Are you not ashamed to wrong me? And even if it is true that I have erred, my error remains with myself. If indeed you magnify yourself against me and make my disgrace an argument against me, know then that God has put me in the wrong and closed his net about me. Behold, I cry out violence, but I am not answered. I call for help, but there is no justice. He has walled up my way so that I cannot pass. And he has set darkness upon my paths. He has stripped from me my glory and taken the crown from my head. He breaks me down on every side and I am gone. 
And my hope has he pulled up like a tree. He has kindled his wrath against me and counts me as his adversary. His troops come on together. They have cast up their siege ramp against me and encamp around my tent. He has put my brothers far from me. And those who knew me are wholly estranged from me. My relatives have failed me. My close friends have forgotten me. The guests in my house and my maidservants count me as a stranger. I have become a foreigner in their eyes. I call to my servant, but he gives me no answer. I must plead with him, my mouth for mercy. My breath is strange to my wife, and I am a stench to the children of my own mother. Even young children despise me. When I rise, they talk against me. All my intimate friends abhor me, and those whom I loved have turned against me. My bones stick to my skin and to my flesh, and I have escaped by the skin of my teeth. Have mercy on me. Have mercy on me, O you, my friends, for the the hand of God has touched me. Why do you, like God, pursue me? Why are you not satisfied with my flesh? Oh, that my words were written. Oh, that they were inscribed in a book. Oh, that with an iron pen and lead they were engraved in the rock forever. For I know that my Redeemer lives. And at the last he will stand upon the earth And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold and not another. My heart faints within me. If you say, how will we pursue him? And the root of the matter is found in him. Be afraid of the sword. For wrath brings the punishment of the sword, that you may know that there is a judgment. Amen. Now we're a month into Job. I guess for us as a church, it is quite a bold undertaking to preach this kind of material. I found the first three sermons Andy has preached to be very helpful to my own soul, and I encourage you to listen online. Job is the kind of Bible book you get most out of as you live in it and you wrestle with it alongside life. The book of Job is about getting godly wisdom. It is about knowing what to think when difficulties and suffering and perplexities of whatever form come. It is about knowing what to say to people when difficulties and suffering and perplexities come in their lives. And if together, as a church, we do a good job in understanding the text of Job we will benefit. Why? Because suffering and difficulties and perplexities are inevitable. And we need to know what to think and we need to know what to say. 
And there are no simple or tried answers. There are none in real Christian faith. Real Christian faith is chock full of tension and hoping and waiting and struggling and praying. And the oldest amongst us, when I say that, nod. And yet in that waiting and struggling and praying and waiting, real Christian faith is full of confidence and steadiness. There are two things that I have found particularly encouraging in our studies in Job. First, Job's honesty and his realism. He feels and bears his pain and perplexity to God in a way that first seems to us shocking. But in truth, as he speaks out loud to God, as directly as he does, it is liberating because it is real. And the second thing I have found immensely encouraging is his certain trust in God. He lives, as it were, as a man with these paradoxes in tension. His pain and his trust. Now, three facts about Job's life. One, he was a righteous man. I could take you to the beginning of the book. We don't have time to do that. The book is introduced to us. Job was a righteous man, not a sinless man. He's a flesh and blood believer, but he's a believer. He loves God. He follows God. He worships God. God says he's a righteous man. So Job is not a pious man. God says he's a, he's a believer. He loves me. He's one of mine. First fact. Second fact, he suffered terribly in his life. He lost everything. He lost his status, his position, his work, his health, his children, his wife. Everything was taken from him. And for all of us here who are Christians or not, tragedy and suffering will come. Many of us, as Andy prayed, are suffering. You know, when you pray in a church on a Sunday, uh, you don't tack on that uh, third segment to your intercessory prayer because that's what you do. You do it because always there are people who are suffering. There are people in our church family tonight who are dying, literally. Or it might be far less big issues than that, but suffering is there. It's real, it's painful. The third fact about Job's life, fact one, he was a believer. Fact two, he suffered a lot. Fact three, he had friends. Three friends in particular who offered counsel and advice to him as he suffered. Their names are Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. And they did not turn out to be good friends because they did not give godly wisdom. 
they regarded themselves as godly and righteous, and much of what they say to Job about God is true. And that's what makes them so dangerous, because they are insiders. They're inside the church, if you like, and they're a warning to us. They're a warning to us that as much as Job as a book is about getting godly wisdom, it is a book about giving godly wisdom. So that's uh, the book of Job. And at the end of chapter 17, if you just glance at that in your Bibles, we find Job downcast. Now, to say that we find Job downcast, he really is in the pit. He's on a rubbish pit. He's sitting outside the city with sores all over his body, with a bit of potter's clay bursting the sores to get some relief from his pain. He's sitting on a place that Jesus would call Gehenna, hell on earth. He is a broken man. And don't write him off because you will not ever find yourself sitting in living hell on earth. You might well. Or you might well find somebody who is. You might know somebody, for example, who is suffering from severe depression. And let me tell you, they feel like they are living on hell on earth. They do. Chapter 17, verse 1, my spirit is broken, my days are extinct, the graveyard is ready for me. All he can do is contemplate death. It is in Job's heart, both inevitable and his desire. Where then is my hope? 15, chapter 17, 15. Who will see my hope? Will it go down to the bars of Sheol? Shall we descend together into the dust? Job is reflecting on where he is going, death and then And what you need when you are as low as that is a good mate. So along comes Bildad, the last person Job needs. What Bildad says is the last thing he needs to hear. And yet, in his ungodly wisdom, the food of that is, in Job's testimony, a wonderful expression of steady faith. Now, the title I've given to uh, chapter 18, you'll see it on the sheet, is Bildad's Bad Theology. Now, by theology, I simply uh, mean understanding of God and his purposes. That's all that theology means, God talk, if you like. And Bildad's brand of bad theology is the most dangerous kind because it has got lots of truth in it. Now, false teaching in the church, and false teaching is not just moral and ethical teaching. False teaching is pastoral teaching that is wrong. False teaching sounds plausible and true. So, in this chapter 18, we get a perceptive, accurate, and emotive picture of what hell is like. It is true, much of it. So if you find yourself agreeing with what Bildad says about what hell is like, well, what he says is right. 
But that is something fundamentally wrong, as we'll see. Now, essentially what Bildad is saying to Job is this. And one of the challenges when you read Job is it's written in poetry and we're quite good at the epistles in the New Testament. They kind of go A plus B equals C equals D. The, the poetry is, is, is more difficult for us to go. Let me tell you what I think Bildad is saying, then I'll show you and see if you agree. This is essentially what he's saying to Job. He, he, he says, look, Job, God is sovereign. God is in control of the created order. And in God's sovereignty, the righteous will be rewarded and the wicked those God is against will be punished and will suffer. And the place of punishment for those God is against in the end is hell. And hell is an awful place. It is dark. It is inescapable in punishment and turmoil. It is a place of terror, destruction, separation, and isolation. And Job, my friend, that is exactly where you are now. And therefore, Job, God is against you. And there is stuff in your life that means God is against you. You are in hell because God is against you and you're on the road to everlasting hell. Now, you would never say that to someone, would you? But I want you in your life as a Christian. There will be times that you think and conclude, either consciously or subconsciously, that Bildad is right and that God is against you. Now, Bildad is just the kind of mate you want beside you in a crisis. But let's not caricature him. Let's not caricature him in terms of what he says or what we feel. Let me just show you what I think he is saying from the text. Just look at the text. It's really good if we get our noses into the the text, the poetry. Uh, Verses 1 to 4, Bildad is exasperated with Job. They do fire at each other, Job and his friends. Uh, Why are we counted as cattle? Uh, What that is uh, alluding to is a statement from Job earlier to them said, your advice is so bad, I'd be as well asking a cow. That's what he's saying here. And the key to what is in Bildad's mind is verse 4, shall the earth be forsaken for you, or the rock be removed out of its place? And what does Bildad mean in Old Testament language? The earth or the rock is used to describe the pillar or foundations of the world. It's a way of speaking of created order. In this world, God is ordered. He is sovereign Actions have their consequences. Righteous people will be rewarded. Wicked people will be punished. Job, this is an ordered world. God is sovereign. Your actions have consequences. God is punishing you because he is against you. That, Job, is the obvious conclusion. And Job, my friend, you need to get real. Get your head around this. Confess your sin. Why should God make an exception for you? All your sophisticated words and arguments, all these Christian songs that you sing, face it, Job, God is against you. Just look at your life. 
It's a sham. You're the stupid one. Now, Bildad goes on. Bildad says, look, Job, let me give you a flavor of what hell is like. You're going to agree with me. Hell is a place, verses 5 and 6, where it is dark. Hell is a place, verses 7 to 10, of inescapable punishment. It's like uh, uh, being cast into a net. It's like a trap that seizes you by the heel. It's like a, a snare that lays hold of you. It's like a rope that is hidden for you in the ground. You just cannot escape this punishment. Verses 11 to 14, hell is a place of, of terror. Look at the bookends, the beginning of verse 11. Terrors frighten you. At the end of verse 14, the king of terrors. There's a great title for a horror film. The king of terrors, one, two, and three. I wonder if any of you have ever been terrified or panic-stricken. Well, that is what hell is like. Hell is a place, verses 15 and 16, of destruction. Not annihilation, notice, but destruction. Hell is a place of terrible separation and isolation, Verses 17 to 21. Your memory perishes from the earth. He has no name in the streets. He is thrust from light into darkness. He has no prosperity or progeny. That's pretty direct from a friend, isn't it? You have no descendants. He knows fine well that Job's children are dead. Hell is a place for those who do not know God. That's his conclusion. Surely, Such are the dwellings of the unrighteous, the end of chapter 18. Such is the place of him who knows not God. Now, well done, Bildad. Every Wednesday, we preach our sermons to each other, and uh, I get torn to shreds, and so do they. But if, if I had a sermon on hell with that content and that clarity, then I would give... 10 out of 10. And I would say, well done, Bildad, for having the bottle to call it as it is, just like Jesus does in the New Testament. That's what hell is like. And we could do with more sermons on that in our culture, of course. Bildad's portrayal of hell is accurate, it is powerfully persuasive, and he is right, the day will come when the Creator God in this ordered cosmos will once and for all judge those who are against him and sweep them away into that place of eternal punishment. And to be fair to Bildad, that is exactly what Job is experiencing in his life now, suffering like this. What is Job experiencing? Darkness, punishment, destruction, separation, isolation. And therefore, the conclusion in Bildad's mind or the conclusion in the suffering life of an individual, God is against you. God is against me. I'm a wicked man. But there is a fatal flaw. Why is this bad theology? And it's not bad theology on hell. That's good theology. Why is it bad theology? 
And God says it is at the end of the book. God says in chapter 42, my anger burns against you, Bildad, and your friends. Job is right. You're wrong. Why is it bad theology? One obvious reason and three more subtle reasons. The obvious reason is that Job is not a wicked man. Job is a believer. He's a righteous man. He loves God. God loves him. Bill Dad's conclusion in verse 21 that what is happening in Job's life is because he is unrighteous and doesn't know God is just plain wrong. Bildad's system has no place in his ordered world for a righteous man to suffer like this. The way Bildad thinks of created order is like a perfect order undisturbed by the trauma of humanity's disobedience and rebellion. And the reality of the world Job lived in and we live in is that wicked people sometimes prosper and that blameless and upright believers suffer unjustly. Now, that is the obvious reason that Bildad's theology is bad. Terrible suffering does not mean unrighteous or God is against you. Now, that pulls the rug out from under your feet and puts it in at the same time. It pulls the rug out and builds concrete under your feet. I'll show you why. Now, the three more subtle reasons that Bildad's theology is wrong are that his theology is too simplistic for three reasons. One, Bildad's theology has no place in his system for Satan, a real personal force of evil in the world. Satan is real, and he attacks believers and brings suffering. Yes, God is sovereign over Satan. He has been defeated at the cross, but Satan works, and he prowls, and he manipulates, and he schemes, and he causes suffering still. Is your worldview too neat for Satan? Do you have a place for him? Do you see and do you feel the suffering he causes? Do you feel his breath as he prowls around you like a lion? His pounce, his bite, his claws. Some of you are experiencing Satan's attack right now. As a church we are, I think, as we engage in this vision of collective commitment to evangelism. I really feel as minister that our church is at a a, a cusp as God wants to turn our orientation round on his head. And as that happens, and we pray for you guys who are going around the country doing mission weeks, you feel the breath of Satan. Do not explain Satan away too lightly and too quickly. 
Bildad's theology had no place for Satan, a real personal force of evil in the world. And Bildad's theology had no place for waiting. His theology is a now theology. I think Bildad would have loved a text like Hebrews 6 and 7. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. If Bildad had Hebrews, he would have quoted that at Job. You're reaping what you've sown. And what Bildad would have failed to realize is that implicit in the writer to the Hebrews is a time frame that is eternally long. It is right that those who are against God will feel in eternity the weight of God against them. It is right that those who love God will feel in eternity the blessing of God with them. But without waiting in your theology, a theology that is for the here and now, you will be all at sea. Now let me just pause there and say this. There is a a big difference between... Let me pause before I pause and say this, which uh, it's great to have guys here tonight who are traveling the country doing missions weeks for universities. One of the things I get to do is, is be a trustee of UCCF, and we sit in trustees meetings. One of the most sobering things we do is we look at the statistics of the fall off of Christian students 5, 10, 15 years down the line. And one of the reasons for that is bad theology. Half truth. That when life comes around, you don't have godly wisdom to survive. Real Christianity is about waiting and longing and praying, holding on to the promises of God in hope. Real Christianity pitches up to a prayer meeting because you don't know what's going on. You want to tell God. Pseudo-Christianity is about now and neatness. And God's time is one of the hardest things for us to accept. He will do things in his time. He is sovereign. He is just. The scales will be weighed The righteous will be blessed. The wicked will be punished. But in his time. Do you think that's a real description of real Christianity? Waiting and longing and praying and holding on to the promises of God and hope. That is how it is, isn't it? As the years go on and stuff comes by. That's not false. It's real. Bildad had no place for Satan for waiting, and he had no theology for the cross. Now, what I mean by that is that he had no place in his worldview for the suffering of the innocent. Of course, as we stand this side of the cross, we understand that at the very heart of what it means to be a follower of God or Christ is to suffer. 
innocently and unjustly. Now, let's listen now to Job, the voice of the believer. And what a remarkable speech it is. I've entitled uh, chapter 19, Job's Honesty and Certainty. Bildad had said to Job, you're suffering, therefore you're wicked, therefore God is against you, and you are going to hell. Job's response, yes, I'm suffering, but I'm not wicked. God is for me. God is my champion. He is going to vindicate me. Yes, I'm going to see God and live forever. Now, what a wonderful testimony of faith-filled hope. Now, you would have thought that Job, off the back of chapter 18, would have immediately moved on to verse 23 of chapter 19. Why, then, do we have verses 1 to 22? So let me rephrase, giving the right weight to the text of chapter 19, what Job says. He says, yes, Bildad, I am suffering. It is agony. It is hell. I have no idea what God is doing. He is attacking me as if I were a wicked man. He has isolated me from my family and my friends. They abhor me. They have turned against me. Why is this happening? Do believers not cry out to God? Why? Yes. Should they not cry out? Yes. 22 verses of pain and anguish. Yes, I am suffering in hell. And only then, And through that pain, and in that pain, wrestling in prayer, does he express his hope and his certainty in God. For I know, for I know that my Redeemer lives. Now that is real faith. That hymn that we sang, There is a Redeemer, Jesus God's own Son, precious Lord. I was thinking, last time, I, or one of the times I sang, it was at a funeral of a 31-year-old. Her name was uh, Scylla Prime, Derek Prime's daughter. You may have known her. Uh, how do we sing that hymn? Did we all stand in that church and lift our hands up? Yes, some of us did. With tears rolling down your face. When I stand in glory, I will see your face. And there I'll serve my King forever in that holy place through tears and anguish and pain and perplexity and prayer. That is biblical wisdom. That is real faith. And it's enormously encouraging to me that the Bible says that is what real faith is like in the real world. And Many of you here are young tonight, and there are exceptions. Some of you have suffered a great deal. But if you have not, you will, and tuck this wisdom away. So that when this time comes, and you stand and sing at a friend's funeral, or they stand and sing at yours, 
you will not walk away from God. You will not conclude that God was against them or against you. And you will sing through gritted teeth and through pain and perplexity, when I stand in glory, I will see your face. Which is what you've sung. Now, we don't have time to look at this in verses 1 to 22 of chapter 19. Job says what Bildad had said. He uses the same language. He said, yes, Bildad, you're spot on. Mate, you're spot on. What you say is right. He says things like, Bildad, leave me alone. It's not your business. It's my business. But he he repeats all the stuff that Bildad had said. And he ends up, just look at verses 21 and 22, Job doesn't have the bottle to say this to God, so he says it to his friends. Have mercy on me, have mercy on me, O you, my friends, for the hand of God has touched me. Why do you, like God, pursue me? Why are you satisfied with my flesh? He asked his friends for mercy, and twice he asked them why, and surely implicit in his words, he is appealing to God for mercy and asking God why. There is... No clear and trite or simple answer to that question, why, in the Bible. The answer is in the verses that follow, and we look at these as we finish. Remember Bildad's conclusion, you are suffering, therefore God is against you. Job's conclusion, yes, I'm suffering, but God is not against me, for I am a believer. God is for me. God will show himself to be my champion, is the word. He will vindicate me. Yes, I'm going to see God and live forever. And let me say to you, with all the empathy and experience and understanding of a pastor who shares pain with people, you need to get to where Job gets in verse 23. But you will not get to it glibly or lightly. Twenty-three to twenty-nine is the place of confident, faith-filled hope, wrought and prayed for in suffering and pain. As a minister, I have seen people here again and again. All manner of stuff assailed against them. And yet this is their testimony. Verse 23, Oh, that my words were written. Oh, that somebody would one day write them in a book. There's an irony, isn't there? Here we are, reading his words. And as we read his words, one more soul tonight might be rescued. One of you young ones might tuck away one minute of what this muddled preacher has said and draw on that wisdom ten years down the line and you open up the book of Job and you read what you feel all that with an iron pen and lead they were engraved in the rock forever and what Job is saying is that I want this written on my gravestone. Don't let Bildad near my gravestone. What would Bildad have written? Job, 
here lies a wicked, miserable sinner, suffered in life because God was against him, suffers in hell for eternity, rest in peace, open brackets, not close brackets. Many Christians in their life feel just that. Here is what Job wants on his gravestone, and uh, you could do a lot worse. It'll cost you a lot, but start saving now. Verse 25, for I know that my, it encourages me no end when you go into a graveyard and you find words like this etched on a gravestone. For I know that my Redeemer lives. And at the last, he will stand upon the earth, literally, I think, on my grave. After my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh, bodily, I shall see God visually, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold and not another. My heart fades. You need a big gravestone to be fair. What confident, faith-filled hope, for I know that my Redeemer lives. I know that God lives and that he will vindicate me. I cannot understand my pain. My suffering is as if it were hell, but he is my champion. He is mine and I am his. Nothing can separate me from him. Nothing can break the tie between us. Whatever suffering, whatever pain, I know that my Redeemer lives. And it's not in something vague or mysterious or ethereal. It is physical hope and a physical resurrection. He will stand on my grave and my skin that is destroyed, my new flesh will see him. I shall see for myself and my eyes shall behold and not another. Notice the personal nature. I know my Redeemer. I shall see him. I shall see from my, my eyes, my heart. And this man lived. When was Job written? The time of the patriarchs, very, very, very early on. And compared to Job, we have far more reason for certain hope because Jesus, the Redeemer, has come. Jesus, who said things like, I am the resurrection and the life. We have seen Jesus go into a grave and walk out alive. And we know with more certainty than Job that my Redeemer lives and that one day he will stand on our grave and our bodies will rise and we will see him face to face. It always strikes me at the end of a Sunday how often the person who preaches on a Sunday night quotes something very similar to the person who preached on a Sunday morning. It happens a lot. I don't know why that is. I suspect it's just stuff in our church family we need to hear. And God knows we're a family. We're diverse over different services. And at the last, God will say to you tonight, if you are a believer... And you may be suffering in hell tonight. God will say to you, that man is mine, that woman is mine. They belong to me. And if your heart faints within you, 
and you are overwhelmed with emotion and a deep sense of peace in God. That is not put into you by any rhetoric, any persuasion, any empathy of me as a minister. It is in you by the Spirit of the living God. And no man or woman can put that in. The last two verses are a warning to those who do not believe that there will be judgment. All the stuff that Bildad said about hell is right. And I guess what Job is saying is, I'm not going there, Bildad, but you might be. Now, our time is done. And uh, I hope you agree with me that this is important Bible material. This is real Christianity, born in anguish and pain and perplexity and honesty and prayer, waiting and resting in God with a certain hope. This is biblical wisdom. This is what we need when suffering comes. It is what we need to say when we are with people when suffering comes. Some of you will come up to me afterwards and say, why? Job will get us there in time. Let me just give you a foreshadow of the answer to that question. What, what happens when a believer, and I can think of many in my mind, lying on their deathbed, and these are real things that go on all the time in a church, says through gritted teeth with morphine shots all over them, I know that my Redeemer lives. Who is mocked? Satan is mocked. Who is glorified? God, supremely, for nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, as Andy read. Now, these texts are not texts to be peppered and quoted and written in cards, but they are true. And there is something profoundly true that when our testimonies are clear in the pit of suffering, God is supremely glorified. The last thing I want to say, and the most important thing, is this. And it's simply a question to somebody here. And, and this is what preachers often do at the end of sermons. And, and I guess the guys in the mission week will ask this question every night. And they'll ask the question, do you know God? Do you know Jesus personally? And, and you feel as a preacher at your most fumbly and pathetic when you start saying that stuff at the end. But if you cannot say, for I know that my Redeemer lives, then you face eternal hell. And everything that Bildad says will happen to you. You will live in darkness for all eternity. And you'll be terrified. And you'll be destroyed. And there is no hope. And there is no God. And there is no resurrection out of that pit. Because one day you will die. And you will lie on your deathbed. And you will either see through pain and perplexity, for I know that my Redeemer lives or you will have none. 
And if you can't say that, then for goodness sake, talk to somebody who can't say that. Or pray with them. Or come and pray with me. Most importantly, as we sing, cry out to God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this godly biblical wisdom. It is hard, Lord, to understand these passages of Scripture fully, but they do strike a chord of reality with us. And thank you that Christian faith and your word is not unreal or escapism, that it is most articulate in the pits of life. Lord, we pray that tonight that you would rescue anyone here who is not yet a Christian, who does not yet know Christ as their Redeemer. Do it tonight, we ask, for your glory and their safety. And we pray, Lord, for anyone here who is suffering either on a major scale or a minor scale, feeling like you are against them through their pain and through their perplexity. Lord, we pray that by your Spirit, not persuaded by rhetoric, but by your Spirit, that they would lay their head down in their bed tonight and say in their hearts, I know that my Redeemer lives and I will see him face to face for he is my friend and my champion. Answer these prayers, we ask you. For we ask them in Jesus' name. Amen.